Father in heaven, I pray you would grant to us uh, freedom to listen uh, to this word this morning, that it will in fact transform, dig deep, provide for us a a new affection even for you. Um, This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Hebrews in chapter 10. I want to read verses 1 through 18. Hebrews in chapter 10, please. Verses 1 through 18. Hear the word of God. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit often bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write, it on their, write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, this is the kind of summary concluding uh, passage of all that we've been talking about as Jesus, our high priest. Uh, you'll notice, if you have your Bibles open, verse 19, which is the verse we didn't read, we left off at the end of 18, but verse 19 begins with the word, therefore. And so he's built this whole case about Jesus being our high priest in order to say what he's going to say next. We're not going to get to that. But in order to say what he's going to say next, and just as a sneak preview, verse 19 is this. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his death, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, and then he goes on, he's saying this, all of this that he's been telling us about Jesus, our high priest, is so that we can be confident and know that we are able in Christ to enter into the very presence of God 
behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies to enter into the very presence of God. He's telling us all that and he's saying, now given that that is true, I want to apply that. Given that that's true, that we can enter into the very presence of God and live there, I want to tell you then that what that means for us. So that's what's, that's what's coming. And what it means for us is he's going to say, let's therefore together enter into the presence of God and live there. And he says, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to do it by faith. You're going to have to live by faith, chapter 11. He's going to define faith for us and illustrate faith for us. And then he says, as one who lives in the very presence of God, you need to understand your life in the context of God being your father. Thus, as his child, you will experience training. You will experience discipline in the course of your life. That's a privilege of a child. And that isn't to break you, but it's to to make you more holy. And it will have this discipline, a harvest of of righteousness and peace. So, so that's where he's heading. But it's all based on, on the fact that Jesus is our high priest. So one more time, we're going we're gonna to think about uh, Jesus as our high priest. Remember that the reason that the author of Hebrews comes to this point of Jesus being our high priest is that he wants us to have the full assurance of hope. Notice back in chapter 6 and verse 11, he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, uh, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then it's after that, actually he's in the, he just introduced this idea of Jesus being our high priest, and he's taking a bit of a pause here in the middle of chapter 6, but he's going to get back to it. And so that's his reason for laying this all out. He thinks, thus God thinks, thus it's true, that if we can grasp the fact that Jesus is our high priest and all that means, then it will bring to us full assurance of hope. That we'll be certain, that is, we'll have this certain hope that everything that God has promised is true. And everything that God has promised to us uh, will come to us. And he's telling us this, that we are to have this full assurance of hope, so that we won't be sluggish, so it won't slow us down, so that we'll actually be earnest in our life for Christ. He's saying if you, if you have this, this hope out there, that no matter what you're experiencing, if you have this hope, then you won't be sluggish, but rather you'll be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he wants us to live by faith and patience. And in order to do that, we have to have hope. Without hope, we won't be able to do that. And the reason that we need faith and patience is because these promises are just that. They're promises. They're to come, by and large. Much has come to us already, but much is still to come. I don't think I have to clue you in that this ain't heaven. Right? Okay? So just take that and run with it. And that, whatever that means, heaven is still to come in the context of our lives. This isn't the new earth. This isn't the new heavens upon which Jesus visually, if you will, visibly rules and reigns and all of that. That's still to come. We're to wait for that. And we need to wait in faith, believing it's coming, and patiently, that is, without complaining, without grumbling. And not only that, but all of this faith and patience, as we've said before, is complicated by the fact that life can be difficult. For instance, when the author of Hebrews tells us about living by faith, he concludes it with this. Notice in chapter 11, verse 32. He says, and what, shall I, what more shall I say that is about people living by faith? He says, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, 
uh, Jephthah of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, uh, women received back their dead by resurrection. Now that all sounds really good. But then he, he has to add this. He says, uh, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves uh, of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now, that's not much of a marketing piece, is it? And so he says, I want you to have hope. I want you to be certain. If you're going to be able to live like that, if so called, then as you're being sawn in half, as you're living in destitute because of your faith, I want you to have the hope that all the glorious promises of God are really true. And the ticket for him, the ticket for the author of Hebrews, the, the, the thing that he thinks is going to enable us to have that hope is to tell us that Jesus is our high priest. So that's what all of this has been about. And then even in our life with God, for instance, in chapter 12, verse 7, he's talking about living under the fatherhood of God. God is our father. We as his cherished children. Verse 7, he says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. He's saying, listen, I know there's difficulties in life, and you need to endure that as discipline for the sake of being disciplined. Not punished, but trained so that you'll grow up. And so he's saying, this is, how, this is what's happening in the course of life. And so you need to have hope, because sometimes that discipline, this experiences of life which train us under God, can be quite difficult and very discouraging. And he says, so I want you to have hope. So if you have this hope, this full assurance of hope, then you'll be able to live like those people that I just read about, who through faith and patience did ultimately inherit the promises of God. Not in this life, but in the next. And again, his ticket, his reasoning is, if you can only catch a glimpse, if you can only embrace the fact that Jesus is our high priest and all that that means, then you'll have this hope. If you have this hope, you won't be sluggish, you'll be earnest, and you'll live by faith and patience, even in the midst of whatever comes your way. All right? that's, that's the rationale of, of all of this, the author of Hebrews. He starts his case out in the very first sentence, really, of this message. Um, and by the way, just as a little aside, his case is objective. By that I mean, his case isn't made just on some basis of some idea or some philosophy or, dare I say, myth, story that people are to live their life around. It isn't that at all. He's appealing to that which actually took place in history. As old Francis Schaeffer used to say, in time, space, dimension, history. Real happening. In fact, the Apostle John puts it like this in 1 John in chapter 1. He, he writes this, verse 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, 
The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was from the Father, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard. I mean, how many times can he say it? He said, we've seen this. This isn't just an idea. This isn't just something someone thought up and even just verbally communicated to us. It isn't a chart that we've seen. It's not a video. It's real. We've seen it. We've touched it. We've heard it. This very one Jesus... And so the whole case that the author of Hebrews is making to give us full assurance of hope, frankly, as you know, the whole matter is founded upon, grounded upon, Christ himself. And so he's always our trump card. He's always the one we go to. He's, 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 he's the one, of course, that makes Christianity. As we've said over and over again, if you take Muhammad out of Islam but just replace him with another prophet who says the same things, you can still have Islam. If you take Buddha out of Buddhism, but replace him with someone who says the same things and lives the same kind of life, you still have Buddhism. But if you take Jesus out of Christianity and you replace somebody who says the same things he did, he said, and did the same things he did, it would accomplish nothing. Because they're not him. They're not Jesus. They're not the eternal Son of God who's worth us all, you see. Someone else can say the things that Jesus said. Someone can stand there and say, I'm the bread of life. Someone can say, I'm the light of the world. Someone can say, I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the gate. I'm the true vine. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Someone can say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I've come not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Someone can die on an unjust death in the most horrible fashion, and it won't do anybody any good, you see. And so the whole matter is Jesus. The whole matter is what they saw. The whole matter is what they heard from him. The whole matter is what he did. See? And so that's really the case that the author of Hebrews is making. It isn't a philosophy, per se. It isn't just an idea. He's just reporting history, in a sense. He's saying what has taken place. That's why when we talk about Christianity, we use this little expression. It's a wonderful little expression you need to just adopt. And that is to talk about the history of redemption. That is how it all unfolded. In fact, if there's any book in the Bible that talks that way, in this, about the history of redemption, it's this book of Hebrews, because it's, it's, it's talking from, from the beginning and how God laid it all out and God brought it uh, to, to, to bear and brought it to pass through days and weeks and months and years and centuries, and generations, and all of that through history. Because it's not so much just what Jesus said, but it's what he did, and it's who he is that makes what he said and what he did work really real. All right? That's just this is a little sermonette. Now, the way the author of Hebrews approaches this, though, is he goes back, of course, to Jesus. And he says, now, let's take a look at Jesus compared to everyone else that we think is really religious, everyone else that we really think knows God. And let's compare him to the prophets who had the message of God that they had received from God. Jesus is better than that because he didn't have to receive the message from God because he's God the Son eternal. He's known it from the beginning. Whatever that means to God. Right? He's known it before time. He's known it. Because he is it. He is the message. It isn't just simply a message that he brings. It's a message that he is. And he comes and, and, and brings it, you see. 
He is it in his very life, his very actions, his very deeds, in his very person. He is the message. So he's greater than the prophets. And the angels, they were messengers too, and spiritual beings. So, so we, they're a little fancier, it seems, than just these prophets, because they're spiritual. And they, they, you know, um, we can't see them unless they sort of show up and make themselves seen and known to us. They're messengers of God, but, but Jesus is better than the angels because he's the Son of God, the creator of all it is. And not only that, he's greater than even Moses. I mean, Moses was great. He was the deliverer. But the Bible speaks of Moses as a servant in the house of God. Jesus is a son who built the house. He's the master, you see. And he's greater even than all the priests, he says, that represented people before God. He's greater than those priests because he has a, a greater priesthood. His priesthood is of that strange man that we talked about, Melchizedek who seem to have no beginning and no end, telling us that Jesus is the eternal one and Jesus is the forever priest. The other priests live and die just like other men. Jesus lived, died, and rose again and lives now, continuing to intercede for us. Those other priests, they're, they're, they're just going to go and die someday. But Jesus is alive. And their sacrifices were repeated time and time again because they were just animals. Those animals didn't have the worth of a human being, and those animals didn't have the same moral responsibility of human beings. They just stood for something, it seems. But Jesus himself, God made flesh dwelling among us, worth us all. So his sacrifice is better. And now the author of Hebrews comes to this particular passage in chapter 10 to kind of sum that all up. And in the first few verses, he, 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 he concludes verse 4 uh, with this. He says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse uh, 1, he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the, these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. He says it, it was never designed to fulfill all that it pointed to. It just pointed to something. And so it wasn't designed for all of that. And, and over and over again through this message, the author of Hebrews is telling us that very thing. For instance, in chapter 7 and verse 11, he writes, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek uh, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? He's, he's already said to us, listen, if, the, if this previous um, covenant could work, then we wouldn't need a new priest. We wouldn't need this high priest Jesus. Then in chapter 8 and verse 7, he writes, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He said, listen, there wouldn't need to be a new covenant if, if the old one could do it. But there is need for a new one because the old one was never designed to bring it all to pass. And now he's saying in verse 2, he's saying, otherwise, would they not have ceased, that is the priests, would they not have ceased to be, uh, I'm sorry, the sacrifices, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? He's saying, listen, if the first covenant worked, then the sacrifices would have ceased after the first one. It would have accomplished the task, but it didn't. It had to continually be repeated over and over again as a reminder of sin. And so it's impossible, you see, for the blood of bulls and goats to perfect our salvation. 
to make us perfect before God, to really cleanse our consciences. Uh, they simply point to that uh, which is to come. That's verse 1 in chapter 10. So the obvious question is, why? Why did God institute these sacrifices in the first place? Why is it that he, he had this elaborate tabernacle and then temple being made? Why these little rooms, especially this place called the Holy of Holies? Why this Ark of the Covenant with a mercy seat on top? Uh, why is it that these priests would represent when, when none of that could really bring it to pass? Why? I, I, I don't know. He just said in the fullness of time, that is when all of that time did what it was supposed to do, which I assume was to make us ready, which I assume was to, was to, to build all the, the right thinking and all the right concepts and, and, and all the right history before Jesus could come. I, I assume that's the case. The scripture just says that Jesus came in the fullness of time when he was just right and ready. And so I don't have the answer to that one, except that it does rightly point us to Jesus. Because you see, in all of that, these priests making sacrifices, in all of that, we can see that God is holy. And that to live in His presence means we must be cleansed. It means that we are not holy, though God is. And therefore, since we're not, and since God is just, it's a reminder to us, pointing us to the very fact that in order for us to live in the presence of God, then our sins must be dealt with. And since the wages of sin is death, since the penalty of that sin is, is separation from God, then we're sunk unless he's willing to take a substitute, which he is, an unblemished one, this animal that will stand for us. And he's willing to accept a representative coming in our stead, the priests. And so all that's being built into us. And we realize that we need to do this all by faith. We can't just do this by rote. We can't just do this by ritual. That would be so offending to God to not be engaged in this. And so when we bring these offerings, what we're doing is we're doing it by faith, believing that this very one God has appointed to represent us will. And this very animal that God has, has said he'll take as a sacrifice, and in some sense he will, so that we can be forgiven our sins. And looking at all that, we realize, I don't know how that's going to take place. So we trust that God must be going to bring someone in whom all of that will be fulfilled. And that's all that this is pointing to. In fact, as we move on in chapter 10, verse 5, the author of Hebrews quotes um, Psalm number 40 written by David, but puts it on the lips of Jesus. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. These sacrifices and offerings, uh, they're not going to cut it. They're not going to work. They're just pointing to something. What's really necessary is for someone to be sacrificed in a body, a real human being. And so you've prepared this body for me. These sacrifices simply pointed to me. No. You've prepared a body for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So Jesus is saying, Okay, I'll come. I'll do your will. I'll take up this body, and I will do your will in every particular way. Verse 8. When he said above, that is Jesus, You've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. 
He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. That is, first covenant to second covenant, first sacrifices to second. Verse 10, And by that will, that is the very will Jesus came to accomplish, the very will of God, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now that is an amazing statement. That's one that, 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 that requires an index card in the pocket for about six months. You know, writing that one down, having that one with us. He's saying the sacrifice of Jesus accomplished something. It wasn't just a potential something. It accomplished something. And amazingly, what it accomplished is something that he calls our having been sanctified. Now, normally when we think of the word sanctified, we think of this process by which we're being made holy. You have been hanging around the church a long time, and that's a new word to you. The word sanctified simply means to set apart, to be holy. The word holy generically just means to be set apart. If you have a sack of potatoes and you take out one of those potatoes and you stick it in the microwave to make yourself a baked potato, you've just sanctified that potato. All right? You've made it holy. Uh, it, it, all those other potatoes are just regular old potatoes just sitting there. But you've taken this potato and you've set it apart from all the other potatoes for its intended use, which is to make you happy. All right? Then when you take the butter... They sanctify the butter. That's all other thing. But, but, um, but you sanctified, you see, this, this potato. Uh, set it apart for its intended use. And so this is telling us that it was the will of God. Jesus come to do his will. It was the will of God for Jesus to come and accomplish that will, meaning to sanctify, that is, to set apart people for himself, for his Father, and accomplish something. Notice verse 14 how it puts it. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So all those ones sanctified and coming to be as they come to faith, all of those are perfected. That is, the salvation of God is perfected in them. Notice how Jesus puts it. John chapter 6. Verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, nor believes in me And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So you get this sense. The Father has given some to the Son. And when they come to him, and they'll all come to him, and he'll never cast them out. Verse 38. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Right? That's exactly what the author of Hebrews, quoting Psalm 40, is saying, the Son of God, that he's come to do the will of God. Um, Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So here's the picture. The picture is that the Son has come to do the will of the Father. The will of the Father is that he won't lose any of those he's given to him. And so he comes with a purpose in mind, and the purpose in mind for which Jesus comes is to sanctify all those. 
And he's saying, my one offering did it. They're sanctified. That is, they've been set apart uh, and will be used for their intended use, which is to be ultimately worshipers of God. They're the ones cleansed. Uh, notice, back in verses 1 and 2 of or verse, yeah, 1 and 2 of chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. But this one offering of Jesus can make them perfect. Now, I don't want to rock your boat, but you're not perfect right now. And I'm not perfect right now. In that sense that we're understanding we're not perfect. But in another sense, we are. Our salvation has been perfected. That is, our salvation has been brought through this offering of Jesus to completion. Everything's been done. And it's that certain. And that's what we need to keep reminding ourselves of. It is that certain. And not only that, he goes on then in verse 11. And he compares these priests with Jesus. And he says that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, that seems to be a small distinction. One is still standing, one is sitting. But you see, one doesn't sit until one is done. And his sacrifice is done. And and the author of Hebrews wants us to get in our minds this picture of Jesus sitting, if you will. Not standing as if he's got more to do. Not standing as if there's other stuff left to do in relation to this offering. He's sitting in relation to this offering. The offering's been made. It's done. And then he says, not only is he sitting, but he's sitting at the right hand of God. And then he says, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You see, when Jesus is waiting and sitting, he's not passive. Because he's at the right hand of God, meaning he's ruling and reigning meaning he's interceding for us, as chapter 7 in Hebrews says. But he's sitting in regards to the offering. There's no more offering to be made. It's all done. There doesn't need to be anything done for your sin and mine. It's already done. Bear that in mind. And in his waiting, he's sitting there confidently at the right hand of God, knowing that every single enemy will be put as a footstool under his feet. He has no concerns. He doesn't worry about any particular enemy. He's not thinking that his plan in sanctifying those the Father had given him will not come to pass. He's perfectly confident of that. He knows that's good. He's just sitting there, ruling and reigning, interceding, sitting there, knowing all this is going to happen throughout time, throughout history. And you say, well, why doesn't he just come now? Well, because there are still the enemy of unbelief and the enemy of death to put away in all the generations of Christians to come. If he came today, it would mean then that every single one that the Father had given him had come. We can rest assured of that. We can rest assured of the moment that Jesus returns to the earth, there aren't any that's going to come the next day. Nobody's going to go to Jesus. You know, if you had just given me till tomorrow, you know, I was only on the third spiritual law. I just needed... One more day, and I would have been in. No, that's not it. That's not the case. None will be left out. 
It's been perfected. He did it, sanctified, set apart. It, whether in this generation or the generation to come. I don't know how long that's going to be. I don't know how many more generations. Uh, I don't know how many more moments. I just assume not have to drive home in the snow. But, um, but then again, there might still be some to come. And so he's waiting patiently. This moment of grace. However long that shall last. But he's doing it with great confidence because he knows that the decisive battle has been won. That all those the Father gave him are sanctified and their salvation is perfected. Now, what does that mean for us? I mean, this verse 14 is another one. If you're going to do the index card thing, but verse 10, which says, And by that will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Then under that put verse 14, For by a single offering he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Or if you have a New American Standard, it says those who have been sanctified. What's that mean for us? First this, that we can live with full assurance of hope. We can live knowing that it's done. We can live with that assurance because Jesus is sitting. The sacrifice has been made. He has accomplished that which the Father gave him to do by way of his cross. It's done. We can have that full assurance of hope. No enemy can defeat him because he's already defeated the key enemy on the cross, sin and death. And now it's just playing out. Now in successive generations, uh, 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 we're seeing these enemies being put under his feet. Every time someone comes to faith, the enemy of unbelief is vanquished in their life. And that enemy is gone. And we can look at that person who comes to faith and say, ah, that's Jesus. He did it. That was, he's, he's ruling and reigning, and, and he's been ruling and reigning so that that enemy, unbelief, in that person can be vanquished. Some of you see it as you're raising your children. As the light goes on, as, you, as they come to faith, what you should be thinking is, Jesus is sitting there, just crossed his legs. And he said, I knew that was going to happen. I, I did that. I, I, I sanctified that one on the cross. And, and, and there you go, that enemy. And that enemy of unbelief will not thwart the victory, the triumph of Jesus, you see. Not even death will do that for believers. You remember when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus and he met uh, Mary and Martha there, Lazarus' sisters. And he came to Martha and she said to him, this is in, you know, let's turn to this, John 11, 24. Martha said to Jesus, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that death is the last enemy. And for believers, there's a triumph over death every single time. For each one of us it remains. But we shall live in the very presence of God even through it. And Jesus will sit there. And you go, yes. They've been perfected. Their salvation was perfected. And so as they die, they enter into my presence. And death has no sting because the sting of death has been removed. 
because sin has been paid for by the one offering. So we know that. Then we realize that we're forgiven. And I know that I say that a lot. You must think I'm I'm a great sinner to have to say that a lot. And it's true. See, we need to be reminded all the time for various reasons that we've been forgiven. Uh, And one of those reasons is because we often confuse two things that that can appear alike. But if we misunderstand them, then it will be very detrimental to us in the course of our life. Because you see, we can, we can confuse sorrow and guilt. We can confuse sorrow for sin and guilt for sin. Now, guilt means, if we're experiencing real guilt, it means we're under the condemnation of God. That is, that, that something needs to be paid in order for the guilt to be removed. See, a guilty person stands before the judge condemned, sentenced. And, and, and the only way out is if some, that sentence in some way can be commuted, paid for, if you will, by somebody else. But you're stuck in guilt. Now, Christians needn't feel, whatever that feels like, guilty. Because Christ has paid for our sin. Our guilt is removed. And if we continue to feel guilty, in one sense, and and I say this very reverently to you because I know this is a struggle for some and I don't want to make light of it at all, but it's demeaning to Jesus to live in guilt, to think that we're not accepted by him, to think that there's still punishment to come to us because of our sin. And it's demeaning to him because he took the guilt of our sin. And so for us to continue to wear it, for us to continue to live in it, is demeaning to it. And it's rather harmful to us. Because you see, if we live in that guilt, we're very, very likely to turn out to be very judgmental people. Because you see, judgmental people are people for whom there's, there feels no forgiveness and from whom there's given no forgiveness. You see, when a person feels guilty, and feels condemned by God, then it's very unlikely they're going to be very generous with their own forgiveness because they haven't received it. And if they feel condemned, that condemnation is just going to get exported to everybody else. And so it's dangerous there, you see. It's harmful. And it's even harmful in the sense that we may get confused and think, I feel guilty. I've been told that Jesus has paid for my sins, but that must not be true. Because if it were true, I wouldn't feel so guilty. So that must mean I need to do something in order to make up for that, whatever it is that Jesus didn't do. And that's prideful. That's saying, there's something I can do that Jesus couldn't. You know, he he thought he did, but he didn't. And he's not quite sufficient. He needs my help, even in paying for my sins. That's a harmful way to live, you see. And then once you've accomplished something that you think is worthy of, his forgi- of, of, of paying the debt, then pride just wells up in you. And you go, oh, yes, I'm so good to be able to do that. And you see, it just takes you down the whole wrong path. We needn't feel guilty under God's condemnation, rejected by him, because Jesus has dealt with all of that. But what we may be feeling in the midst of our sinfulness is sorrow that'll never go away. 
nor should it. Now, it shouldn't be debilitating in the sense that it brings us to a point of depression where we get so sorry about our sins that we just can't function. That would be wrong, too, because Jesus has not come to free you to give you life. But in reflection about our own sin, and even as we sin, it will bring to us a measure of sorrow. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, a godly sorrow to lead us to repentance. You see, a godly sorrow in the life of a Christian isn't saying, I'm guilty, therefore I'm rejected by God. It's saying, I've offended, I've hurt my Heavenly Father. I want to go to Him. And I want to confess my sin. And it doesn't cause me to run from Him, it causes me to go to Him. Because I've hurt Him and I know that. And and there's a sense of sorrow about that. And that sorrow, you see, ultimately breeds not being judgmental, but it breeds gratefulness and love. Because I've been forgiven. And thus it causes me to be a merciful, forgiving person to others because how can I withhold it once I've received it? And it causes me to be grateful. Remember when Jesus met that sinful woman, the scripture says. He washed his feet with her hair and anointed his feet with oil. He said, ah, those forgiven much, love much. And not only that, you see, it frees me to be honest. When I understand that my salvation is secure and I've been perfected in that sense uh, for all time, it enables me to be honest. It enables me to be honest with God. When I sin, I can go to Him. I don't have to think, well, I've got to keep this from Him because if He knew this, then poof, I'd be gone. I can confess it. And I can also confess my hurts, my sins, how I've hurt others to them. Because if God is for me, who can be against me? If God won't reject me, why should I fear other human beings and what they might think? It frees me. It frees me to be honest with myself. There's a great line in a hymn we sing. It says, I know my sin in all its greatness, but also him who sets me free. I can be honest about who I am. I don't have to pretend with you or with anybody else, but how righteous I am. I've been forgiven. It keeps me from all the bad motives in in obedience, for instance. It keeps me from legalism. Legalism says that if I do this, I'll be accepted by God. If I obey, I'll be accepted by God. But but, but that's silly, isn't it? Because he said, I accept you. I've already done it. What's left? It keeps me from obeying out of fear. Thinking, oh, if I don't obey God, then he'll reject me. He says, no, 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 no. You've already accepted. It's already done. Don't be afraid. You don't have to obey me because you think I'm going to cast you out. No, you're in if you believe in Jesus. You're in if you've been sanctified by the one offering of Jesus. You're in. Keeps me from obeying Jesus, obeying God out of pride. Thinking, look at me. I'm the super Christian. Well, that's silly. He says, if you were such a super Christian, I wouldn't have had to die for you in the first place. So it sort of wipes out pride, you see. And what it does is it leads me to the one motive for obedience and growing in holiness which is love love for God forgiven much love much Thomas Chalmers was a preacher, theologian ultimately chair of theology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland in the 18th century preached a sermon And the title was this. The explosive power 
of a new affection. The explosive power of a new affection. And by that he meant, when, as the Holy Spirit bears witness, verse 15, that God puts his law on our minds and writes them on our hearts and forgives our sins, what that puts in us is a new affection. Forgiven much, love much. And that new affection is explosive. Because what it does is it motivates in us this love for God. That's the new affection. That's the affection we never had before. That's the affection that grows the deeper we come to know what Christ has done for us. The more that affection grows. That's the motive behind the author of Hebrews here. That's why he wants to tell us about Jesus as our high priest. He said, listen, if you can only understand how great he is, if you can only understand what he's done, if you can only understand that his offering, his death, once for all, the very Son of God, is the thing that sanctified you, perfected you, perfected your salvation, made it a done deal, so that Jesus can sit down and, and watch it unfold as he rules and reigns. If you get that, then it will release in you this new affection that explodes in godliness. And it's all right here. When I say it's all right here, I I, I don't mean that in some sort of physical, magical form it's right here. But Jesus gave this sacrament to us, this meal to us, that we might cast our thinking, our remembrance upon him, that he might by faith, through our faith, meet with him here. Do you remember it was the night that Jesus was betrayed? He took bread and after giving thanks he broke it, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me and in the same way. In the same way he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. He was saying, I'm about to make the one offering. I'm about to make that one offering that everything pointed to and everything will flow from. I'm about to make that one offering that will perfect the salvation of all those who believed me during the days of all of those sacrifices. And I'm about to perfect the salvation of all those who will come to me after. All of those the Father has given me. I'm going to make it done so that they can live every single day of their life with the full assurance of hope, knowing that every promise that God has made, regardless of what they may be experiencing at the moment, will come to fruition, that unbelief will not take them away, that they will not be rejected by my Father, because they'll come to faith and they'll maintain faith, even in the midst of the difficulties of life. What about you? What about me? Do we believe that? And how do we live believing that? Can we live without the guilt? 
Can we live with the assurance? Can we live with the confidence? Can we live with this new affection? Let's pray. Father, I pray we can. Lord, do something now even in us as we come to this table. Jesus gave us this meal to meet with us that we may feed upon him by faith. In this meal, Father, we do not re-sacrifice Jesus. His offering was once for all. That was it. No repeats. How silly of us even to think we could. But it does give us pause to think, to reflect. One offering for all time to change everything. To forgive us. To change our hearts. To give us a new affection. To guarantee all your promises. I pray, Father, as we meet with Jesus in this way, that you would strengthen our faith, that we would be people to live with full assurance of hope that every promise you've made will come true and be true in our lives. Set apart this bread and juice, Father, in a way that enables us to think about, reflect upon, engage with our Lord Jesus and He with us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in His sight without hope, except in His sovereign mercy. But know that His sovereign mercy is in Christ and is secure in Christ. For it was by one offering on the cross that Jesus bought it all, secured it all, that we might have full assurance of hope. And that your heart's desire is to live not out of guilt, not as a legalist, not out of fear, not out of pride, but from a new affection love for him. That's true of you. I invite these two sections that come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and just think, it's done. It's finished. I'm secure. Please come. Time together tonight, 7 o'clock, please, with the children. Please come. Uh, then Saturday evening at 7.15 for our New, uh, Christmas uh, Eve service. And then, of course, Christmas Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. The response to the benediction is the one we've been using throughout this time of Advent. Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.